Hi, everyone, and welcome to the May 13th, 2022 episode of the Automotive News Canada podcast. I'm your host, Greg Layson, the digital and mobile editor here at Automotive News Canada. Folks, Unifor has been without a president since Jerry Diaz abruptly retired earlier this year. He's now under investigation and the union is prepping to replace him. So what happened? Who's in contention? What do they bring to the table? And what happens next? We'll get the answers to all those questions and more when I speak with the man who's been covering this saga in detail. Automotive News Canada Toronto Bureau Chief David Kennedy on this episode of the Automotive News Canada podcast. David, thanks for joining me on the show this week. Hi, Greg. Thanks for having me. Good to have you along. Let's start with this. Why don't you explain to our audience how Unifor ended up in the situation it's in, which is to say without a president after Jerry Diaz abruptly retired earlier this year? Well, obviously, as we know, the Jerry, Jerry Dias' departure was uh, abrupt and uh, a little odd, to say the least. Uh, you know, he basically uh, went on medical leave in February uh, and then retired uh, in early March. Uh, and, you know, a couple of days later, the allegations surfaced against him that, you know, he had basically taken money from the supplier uh, of a COVID, of COVID-19 uh, rapid test. Um, that, you know, he had helped promote to union employers. So, I mean, to say the situation was unusual, uh, especially after he spent eight and a half years in the job, you know, is is selling it a little short. Um, but once he was actually gone, the union's constitution uh, created some problems for it. Uh, so basically, the way, the way the constitution is written is that if the president leaves, uh, the union obviously needs to name a new president, uh, within 120 days. The, the one added challenge here is that Unifor also had uh, an election plan for this summer that, you know, ended up being about 150 days or so uh, after Diaz left. So it, it put them in an awkward situation where, you know, they either would have had to have two elections uh, within, you know, the span of three or four months or wait, uh, you know, for this sort of six-month span to pass without having somebody uh, in the top position. And there were some developments this week um, in regard to that process. Explain those and what it means in um, this sort of chain of events. Yeah, sure. So the basically, we, we've been in kind of limbo for the past couple months, even. Uh, in, in March, Unifor basically came out and said they're going to hold a special convention to replace Diaz. Uh, in that president's position. Uh, And then they would also, as I mentioned, hold another election in the summer uh, to sort of, you know, probably mostly confirm, rubber stamp the person who'd been elected earlier. Uh, But that changed this week. Uh, Basically, they said, they came out and said, you know, the added expense, the unusual uh, circumstances of Diaz's departure means that they are not going to bother holding a special convention. They're going to hold off the extra three months, wait until their uh, constitutional convention in August, and simply hold all the elections then. So, you know, whereas holding two uh, versus holding two elections uh, in the span of a few months, it seems like a good idea in that sense. You know, you save the money, you save the added hassle, uh, you give the candidates more time to campaign. But on the other hand, it does go against what is, you know, the strict, uh, what's written strictly in the Constitution. You know, they, they really have voted to go against what was there. So the 25-member National Executive Board, who, you know, is sort of the greatest, uh, the highest authority the union has between uh, its three-year uh, conventions, which are held every three years, voted to do that. 
so, you know, it, it's just an interesting take when you kind of go against your own constitution. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, they kind of pointed to common sense on this one uh, when it came down to it. I'm not sure if there is, but is there anything outstanding at the moment that a president would have to deal with, particularly in automotive? I don't think there's any negotiations going on right now, but they are without a president. Does that present any problems in the near term between now and August when that um, election is to take place? Uh, No, I mean, certainly, as you said, there's nothing top of mind, particularly within automotive, that's going to come up that, you know, they really would need a leader to step in and make a decision. But, uh, you know, that being said, uh, there there isn't somebody to do that when when needed, and you never know what might arise. Uh, And one of the other issues is that, uh, you know, the person who is more or less de facto in charge at the moment would be Secretary Lana Payne. Uh, you know, who was never elected to that president's position. But you have to assume, you know, kind of as one of the highest ranking members and the one who oversaw the Diaz investigation and the one who has certainly been the most high profile since all of uh, everything, all the developments this year. She's now, you know, in that position uh, and also running for the presidency. So it creates, you know, she's she's basically in the position, uh, but without having been elected. And she is one of three candidates currently running to replace Jerry. The other two are Dave Cassidy uh, and Scott Doherty. Um, You profiled them all this week um, for our website, and it's going to be in print next week, so um, our audience can read a little more about them. But um, with the time we have now, I'll say a name, and you tell me a little bit about them. And since we mentioned Lana off the top, tell me a little bit about Lana Payne and what she brings to the table. Sure. Well, Lana Payne, as I mentioned, is currently the secretary treasurer. She was elected in 2019 to that position uh, and, you know, has been with Unifor since it was formed in 2013. She spent two years uh, in another of sort of the highest uh, elected leadership positions as Atlantic director. Uh, so, you know, she's she's really uh, been, been a major part of the union basically since it was formed in 2013 uh, and, you know, now has decided to run for the top job. Dave Cassidy, president of Local 444 in Windsor, which has churned out a ton of top union executives over the years, even when it was CAW. What can you tell me about Dave? Yeah, I mean, folks in automotive probably know Dave pretty well. Uh, he, you know, he, he's been out there for quite some time. Uh, but, you know, as the president of Local 444, he, he oversees the Windsor assembly plants, uh, essentially. And, uh, you know, a number of other uh employers in the region, not necessarily all automotive. You know, there's a big uh, gaming presence there as well. Uh, And he's also part of the uh, National Executive Board at Unifor. He has been for years and years as the skilled trades rep. Uh, You know, he got his start uh, as an electrician. So it's kind of uh, his backstory, though he's been in, you know, the the Windsor area for his entire career, essentially. Very familiar with Dave. Uh, He was my electrician when I was a temporary part-time worker at Uh, what was then Chrysler while I was in school. So I'm familiar with Dave. I know our audience wasn't, so we filled them in on Dave. What about Scott Doherty, who is currently executive assistant at Unifor? Um, Where is he in the candidacy? Just tell me a bit about Scott. Right. Well, uh, Scott kind of comes from the other side of the country, um, you know, more on the forestry side. Uh, He's from Vancouver Island. Uh, And, you know, that's one of the interesting things. All three candidates come from very different parts of the country. Lana Payne is from Newfoundland. 
Uh, Cassie, as we mentioned, is from Windsor, and uh, Doherty's on the West Coast. Um, but he's uh, Scott Doherty has been a pretty big part of Unifor leadership team for the past eight years or so. Uh, you know, he's been in that executive assistant position to the national president, uh, and in that role, uh, you know, you do a lot of bargaining, essentially. So he has a number of separate files that he had bargaining committees on. Uh, you know, he's, he mentioned that, you know, uh, there are certain times that he'll simply close a bargaining deal himself. Other times, you know, he would have gone to Dias and, you know, get the final uh, nod of approval. Uh, but at the same time, and, uh, you know, he's been, he was part of uh, the auto talks over the last, uh, uh, both both of the two most recent rounds uh, with the Detroit Three. So, those are the three that we know of right now. Um, do you expect any others to enter the race? Uh, you know, it's tough to say. You certainly can't rule it out. Uh, but at the same time, you know, these are three fairly ho- high-profile uh, candidates when it comes down to it. Uh, even uh, before Lana Payne entered the race in April, uh, you know, this was a little bit unusual for the union in that they really had uh, a bit of a, a election on their hands. Uh, even though there is always an election, normally uh, the National Executive Board, and it has been this way since, uh, you know, the C- CAW days as well, uh, the National Executive Board picks a candidate to endorse. And, uh, you know, most uh, most of the time, uh, or all of the time, I should say, in the past, uh, people have just fallen in line. So with the three that we have now running for this position, do they differ greatly from one another? Um, is there a distinct message or platform or issues that each bring, or is it tough to differentiate between the three candidates? Uh, you know, I would say there's obviously similarities between all of them, but they do, as I mentioned, come from pretty different backgrounds. You know, Lana Payne comes from the East Coast. Uh, you know, so she grew up in Deer Lake. Uh, you know, she got her start with the Fish Food and Allied Workers Union uh, out in Newfoundland and then kind of progressed to a number of other roles there uh, within her local and then moved up uh, to the Newfoundland and Labrador Federation of Labor, uh, you know, uh, back in 2008 or so. So, you know, she's been on this circuit for a long time, but she comes at it from a much different uh, perspective than, you know, somebody like Dave Cassidy, who is, uh, you know, he's obviously a local union president. Uh, It's a very large local union, I should add. Uh, And, you know, it does have that diversity. So he deals with things like bargaining. He deals with, uh, you know, a number of issues that a lot of others would have faced. And I should add that, you know, Lana Payne has as well. She has, has a hand in bargaining. Uh, you know, she mentioned that in 2020, the big auto talks to the Detroit Three, you know, she was a part of that as well as secretary treasurer. Uh, so, you know, there's similarities there. Uh, and then on, on when it comes to Scott Doherty, um, same thing. He just has a different, uh, basically, uh, route into this. Um, he, you know, he got his start on the West Coast uh, and mainly in the forestry sector with the CEP. Uh, so, you know, he, he became a, a union president uh sometime in the mid-2000s, and then, you know, sort of moved up from there. When Unifor and, uh, when uh, the CAW and the CEP formed Unifor in 2013, uh, he was elected Western Regional Director. Uh, and then sort of uh, quite quickly, he became, he was appointed uh, one of the assistants to the national president, and then got a bump up quite shortly after that to the executive assistant. Uh, and sort of, as I mentioned, uh, has a lot of bargaining uh, experience in that role over the past eight years. I'm glad you brought up that he was uh, part of CEP and, of course, the merger of, of CAW and CEP in 2013. 
Um, CAW went from uh, basically an automotive union to part of a large, the largest private sector union in Canada. So I'm curious, how big of a part does auto still play in the grand scheme of things at Unifor? How much influence might that segment still hold when it comes to electing a new president in August? Right. I mean, it's going to play a pretty big part of it. Uh, just uh, the raw numbers of uh, Unifor's 315,000 members or so, uh, roughly 40,000 of them uh, work, uh, you know, either at assembly plants, parts plants, or some role in that automotive manufacturing world. So it's still it's still a large chunk of the membership. But, uh, you know, at the same time, it's it's a pretty diverse union. There's a lot of, you know, communications workers and uh general service workers and other other people that have a pretty big stake in this as well. So it's not just automotive, uh, uh, you know, and I, I think going forward, it's going to continue to evolve that way. That's certainly the way it seems that uh, the union expects itself to be going and trying to grow a little bit more over the next few years. Uh, but it's also worth uh, remembering that uh, uh, Jerry Dias didn't come from automotive either. Uh, you know, he came from the manufacturing world, but he was never originally an automotive guy. Uh, and as much as, uh, you know, the recent controversies uh, certainly pose some risk to any legacy uh, that he's going to have, uh, you, it's hard to argue with, uh, especially some of the most recent uh, announcements in Ontario that, uh, you know, he's he's played a pretty big role and, uh, and a pretty big positive role in Ontario's automotive industry. Well, that's a great point. I mean, we saw $13 billion worth of investment in an eight-week span this year, and it would be silly for any of us to think Jerry didn't have a part in that leading up to the finalization of those announcements. So um, you're quite right in that, and and he was a big part of getting Oshawa back up and running. So um, your point is definitely taken that um, despite the controversies this year, um, he certainly had a hand in landing automotive investment and securing the future in Ontario, I would think. Right. And I mean, just one of the ultimate ironies was that, uh, you know, that uh, the $5 billion Stellantis battery announcement actually happened on the exact same day as uh, the allegations uh, surfaced against Diaz. So it's just it was just a strange coincidence of timing that, uh, you know, uh, so let's stay with the saga and the legacy. You routinely speak with Unifor executives, not just um, for this story, but you know, as your job as Toronto Bureau Chief, you speak with the union executives, members, local presidents, and, and more. How has this entire saga affected the union and its morale? What's the feedback like from people who aren't in the race to replace Jerry? Right. Well, I, I mean, I think originally, anyway, it boiled down to shock. Uh, you know, there, there, this really came out of the blue, I think, for a lot of members. And, uh, you know, as, as much as there's always going to be uh, uh, rumblings when somebody like, like Gaia steps away from the job the way he did, uh, sort of taking medical leave originally, uh, you know, there was <laughs> some bubbling up of rumors and things like that. But uh, exactly what came out, uh, you know, in March, I think surprised pretty much everybody. Uh, and, you know, as the weeks went by, it kind of morphed from shock into, you know, disappointment, embarrassment uh, from the union perspective, you know, seeing uh, the uniform name dragged down in that sense, because uh, obviously this was an extremely uh, widely reported story. You know, everybody heard about this. Uh, so, you know, that doesn't feel good as a union member. And then, you know, just anger, 
towards Diaz himself. Uh, obviously, the allegations are still uh, not proven. Uh, there is uh, the Union National Executive Board essentially has charged him with this. There is still going to be a hearing. Uh, you know, it's pending Diaz's health. Uh, as we all, as we know, he uh, checked himself into a rehab facility, sort of uh, coinciding with the allegations being made against him, and we haven't uh, heard anything from him since. Uh, but, you know, then there's also a police investigation uh, that was opened, uh, I think, in early April uh, that will dive a little bit deeper into this. So we still don't know, certainly, the conclusion of uh, where this all is going. Uh, but uh, even just with the allegations, there there was a lot of frustration uh, among uh union leadership than just everyday members. Yeah, there are definitely two tracks to follow. One, what happens uh, to Jerry himself in both a union sort of circumstance or situation. Of course, the police are investigating as well. So there's that to follow. And then, of course, we're going to have a new president in August. So, David, I hope you and I can catch up probably around Labor Day um, for an update on both those. But for now, um, great detail, great insight. And thanks for being on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's going to be an interesting few months, that's for sure. It is. Thanks. I want to thank David for being my guest this week. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, have a suggestion, or simply want to comment, email me at glason at autonews.com. And remember, you can listen to all our previous podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, and Google Play, or on our website. Just click the podcast tab at the top of the homepage. That does it for this episode of the Automotive News Canada podcast. We hope you'll join us next time. So long, everybody.